What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. If Russia goes further with this invasion, we stand prepared to go further with sanctions. Because we are taking in oil from Russia, that gives Vladimir Putin leverage. It spikes up the price. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. Let's say Putin succeeds and takes over all of Ukraine. Then we're looking at a new line in Europe that wasn't there before. It's sort of a tit for tat that we're looking at right now. And the question is, where do we go from here? Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. And we add another layer. Sanctions on Nord Stream 2, now reality here in the U.S. as President Biden expands sanctions against Russia and considers releasing more oil from our strategic reserve. Welcome to the fastest hour in politics. We'll bring you the latest in a moment as Washington waits for Vladimir Putin's next move. And we'll discuss it all with Daniel Fried, former ambassador to Poland, former Assistant Secretary of State for Europe. Later, we'll explore the impact of sanctions and what may come next with Brian O'Toole of the Atlantic Council, former advisor to the Treasury Department Sanctions Unit. Our signature panel is in place. Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis are with us for the hour. And the Biden administration today dropping the hammer on Nord Stream 2. Technically sanctioning the company that built the pipeline Nord Stream 2 AG and its corporate officers. And it came just a day, of course, after the president unveiled the first tranche, as we now call it. We're going with tranche, right, around the world. As he indicated, more would be coming. The president has come under increasing pressure to do more, even from some of his Democratic allies in the Senate, as we've told you. Also from Ukraine itself, Ukraine's foreign minister, Dmitry Kuleba, spoke with Bloomberg a short time ago. Well, they did the first wave, which is welcome and helpful, but uh, it, sends, it sends a strong message to Putin, but it still doesn't stop him. So it means we need more sanctions. We need the second wave and then probably the third wave until he, he, it gets clear to him that uh, he shouldn't make any step further. And that may depend on what Russia, or should we just say Vladimir Putin, does next. The U.S. military is moving further east, though, in Europe. Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby a short time ago. An infantry battalion task force of approximately 800 personnel will be moving from Italy to the Baltic region. Uh, it's a movement of up to eight F-35 strike fighters from Germany to several operating locations along the eastern flank. A battalion of attack aviation, specifically 20 AH-64 helicopters from Germany, again to the Baltic region, and an attack aviation task force which is 12 AH-64 helicopters. Happening as we speak, he says they'll be there by the end of the week. And we're joined to talk about all of this by Daniel Fried, former ambassador to Poland, former assistant secretary of state for Europe. Now a Wiser Family Distinguished Fellow at the Atlantic Council. He's back with us on Sound On. Ambassador, thank you for being here. Does this kind of force projection that we're seeing in Poland and, and neighboring countries mean anything to Vladimir Putin? It does mean that the West is not going to sit by passively while he threatens war against his neighbor. He knows perfectly well 
that NATO and the United States don't intend to attack, attack Russia, but he's trying to intimidate the West into basically retreating. He's demanded that, that the U.S. pull out of Poland and the Baltic states. And Biden's not going to do it. The West is pretty united, and that will make an impression on Putin, mm -hmm. but he still may attack Ukraine full on. Will the Nord Stream 2 sanctions announced today, Ambassador, have an impact on Russia, or is this more of a symbolic move since it's, well, not actually operational yet? Well, it's more than symbolic. Yesterday, Germany froze construction, well, froze the certification process of the pipeline. The construction's complete, but Germany had not yet authorized it to go operational. Yeah. Germany said yesterday they were going to freeze that process. That's right. The United States followed with sanctions, and my understanding is Germany was not surprised. We told them we were doing it. That is not symbolism. Putin thought that Germany would never allow political considerations, considerations of strategy, to get in the way of this pipeline deal. Yeah. But things changed. When Germany looked at Putin's aggression against Ukraine— they changed their views. That's a big move by Germany. Today's move by the U.S. follows up. But the big blow came yesterday. Putin's aggression means he's lost Germany. That's a huh. big deal. Well, it certainly is, uh, after what we heard from Chancellor Scholz on his visit to the White House, when he said he was on board, he was part of the team, but wouldn't actually articulate what happened. Poland is in a very peculiar place in this whole conversation. And it's not just the idea of Russia rolling over the border or a cyber attack, ricocheting from Kiev across the border. They're preparing for a massive humanitarian crisis. This is a part of the story that hasn't gotten much coverage yet because it hasn't begun. But after what we saw in Syria, after what we saw in Afghanistan, we know how this story goes. How capable will countries along the border be in handling potentially thousands of refugees. The looming humanitarian crisis that countries like Poland will have to endure, how much can they handle? I hope it doesn't come to that. But if it does, the U.S., the EU will help Poland. Poland won't be alone. Now, there are about a million Ukrainians already in Poland living there and working there, and they get along with the Poles really well. Similar language, similar culture. Ukrainians are popular in Poland. So I think Polish society will welcome them as refugees fleeing Putin's oppression, Putin's yeah. war. They'll need help. But I think Polish society will open its arms, judging by what I know of the many Ukrainians in Poland right now. The two peoples get along. I'd like to hear your answer to the question I asked you a moment ago, Ambassador, and that is, What's the big one? What are the crippling sanctions, if we go all the way, that would actually have yeah. an impact on Putin? Yeah. Well, the Biden administration has hinted at this, and yesterday's just sanctions decisions were a taste of what's to come. The Biden administration could drop the hammer, by which I mean full blocking sanctions against major Russian state banks. Yesterday, they hit the fifth largest and eighth largest bank, but they could go after the biggest. They could go after VTB Bank. They could go after Sparebank. They could go after other state-owned companies. Mm -hmm. Those are big sanctions. You don't get up easily from, a, from sanctions like that. 
So Explain the, to our well, listeners, though, Ambassador, what impact that would have. We talk about sanctioning banks. What would that actually do to change the scenario in Russia? It means that the ruble would crash, the markets would crash. It would be hard for the Russian economy to function with the outside world. It would mean a uh, cut in the growth levels, probably send the Russian economy into a recession. Now, the Russians will retaliate. You mentioned this earlier, and you were right. This is going to be ugly. President Biden warned us last week that Russian retaliation could be serious. Yeah. So this is an ugly. This could be an ugly situation, but the United States and Europe are standing firm. I don't think Putin counted on that. Uh, the other sanctions, the other big sanction, is an export control, basically yeah. a ban on all semiconductors going to Russia. That's big, and it looks like a lot of the Asian countries, Taiwan, uh, Japan, Singapore, they're going to join us. This is a big deal. This will hurt the Russian economy. Putin wants a war. We have ways to push back. Certainly keep him from creating a lot of new military hardware. Uh, Interesting hearing you answer the question on sanctions, Ambassador, because you sure get the sense that while this could be a major impact on the the people of Russia, Vladimir Putin doesn't care. Uh, Is there any way to touch him directly? Is there any way to find his money to go after those who are hiding his money? It's not as easy as simply saying it. We can say we want to go after Putin's money. We can announce steps. But doing so is not going to be easy. Still, you're right. It's probably a good thing to do and probably a good thing also to expose his wealth. He's one of the world's richest men, and he didn't get that by saving his government salary. (laughs) He's hidden the money well. But the Russian people don't seem to like corrupt oligarchs. They're not going to like it when we uncover stuff about Putin. And if he starts a war, maybe in any event, we ought to do it. Go after him and go after more of his circle. We started that in the Biden administration. I was the sanctions coordinator uh, after Putin attacked, when Putin attacked Ukraine the first time. So I was doing this along with Brian O'Toole, your next guest. Yeah, you've seen this movie before, Ambassador. I only have 30 seconds left, sir. I wish I had an hour with you. How far do you think Vladimir Putin is going to go? Is he going to annex parts of the Donbass? I don't know. The Biden administration thinks he's going to launch a general attack on Ukraine, a la World War II style. I'm not convinced of that yet. The Biden administration isn't making it up, right? They're not hyping They've got the intelligence, but we're all hoping that it doesn't happen. Ambassador Daniel Fried, uh, you're always welcome here. Former ambassador to Poland, great to have you with us. Wiser Family Distinguished Fellow at the Atlantic Council. To his point... We'll have his former colleague, Brian O'Toole, a bit later on, the sanctions expert. But we assemble the panel next. Rick and Jeannie are with us on Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. The headline on the terminal, separatists ask Putin to help fight Ukraine, Kremlin says. It's almost like we saw this coming. 
almost like we were told it would happen. Let's assemble the panel. Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis are with us on the fastest hour in politics. Jeannie, Ambassador Freed spoke a moment ago to the significance of the Nord Stream 2 sanctions. And we should note it actually prompted Senator Ted Cruz to lift the holds he had put on a bunch of President Biden's nominees over all of this. Got a nice response from the ranking member on the Foreign Relations Committee. But will it make any difference for Ukraine? They are important, as the ambassador mentioned, Um, you know, the Germany's action the other day, the United States following that, these are important. I don't think Russia was completely convinced that they would act in concert given Germany's dependency on their oil, but they have. And so that is a good sign. Whether they change or dissuade Putin, if he had an intention to go in full force to Ukraine from doing that, I think is another question. And I don't think we know the answer to that yet. Was this uh, the right thing here, Rick? And and I guess a better way to ask it was it too late. This is something that the president was called on uh, to do that he, he decided not to do early in his presidency. And of course, a lot has happened since then. Is it too little too late? Yeah, look, I think the administration's plan was to try to use the threat of sanctions as a deterrent to, you know, the uh, invasion. And by their own determination, the invasion has started. So they weren't deterrents. Uh, the threat. And so now we're going to see if the sanctions themselves uh, can either slow down the momentum or at least uh, create enough pressure on Vladimir Putin not to take even more extreme actions. Uh, Look, I I think Ambassador Freed was spot on. I mean, I think, you know, his view was that, um, you know, these sanctions, if done in a in a methodical way uh, and ratcheted up, uh, like he described, could could have a positive impact on the outcome. But Again, you're dealing with, you know, uh, uh, someone in Vladimir Putin who really, uh, I don't think, listens to anybody. We heard from Ukraine's foreign minister earlier today on Bloomberg. Uh, Dmitry Kuleba spoke with Bloomberg's Anne-Marie Hordern, who asked about the prospect of Putin annexing the separatist regions in the Donbass that have been identified here, remembering that Vladimir Putin annexed Crimea 24 hours after acknowledging it much in the same way he did here. Here was his answer. Not within the next 24 hours. But do you expect that at some point in the near future? No, at at certain point. The problem with President Putin is that he lives in his own world. He doesn't have checks and balances. He doesn't have free media. We we don't really need to hear anymore. The fact is he did not say no. Uh, Jeannie, is that Putin's next move? It very well could be, and I think that that's why it's important that the United States, the Biden administration, NATO, its European allies, keep in concert the fact that they have room to maneuver on these sanctions. I think one that struck me, maybe not the most potent, but may hit hit Putin, rather, is this exporting of American technology to Russia. Because one thing we know is Putin is dependent on the oligarchs over there for their support, and he's dependent on the public. The more strain you put in those two areas increasingly, the more you can potentially deter him. I'm not convinced it's going to work, but I think those kinds of abilities to ratchet this thing up are what's going to make the difference, if anything, short of boots on the ground by the United States and NATO can. And I guess that's not going to happen, Rick. And and, and since Vladimir Putin apparently doesn't care about the rest of this conversation here, does he annex the Donbass? Oh, I think Vladimir Putin's probably sitting with bated breath to know what we're saying. Um, uh, yeah, I think he annexes the Donbass. And then when the attack occurs, you know, uh, against uh, Russian troops in the Donbass uh, by the Ukrainian regulars, he'll mm-hmm. then claim he has to protect them by invading the, the balance of the country. Look, 
Um, it, there's a game plan that he's executing. And as you pointed out earlier, this is not like happening in real time. This is all according to the plan. People are just doing their part in the uh, very extraordinary and, and evil play that Vladimir Putin's scripting out here. I want to ask you both about war powers. Uh, this topic now in the air again on Capitol Hill. We heard today from the Democratic leadership by way of Nancy Pelosi, but she was joined by a number of other lawmakers, some of whom signed off on what was a bipartisan letter, 43 members of Congress, D's and R's, a letter to the Biden administration to, quote, reassert the war powers vested in Congress under the Constitution. This is something that Congresswoman Barbara Lee, Democrat from California, famously, this is her issue, uh, spoke about today. The increase in tensions, we, we signed the letter and wrote the letter because we want to make sure that that uh, war, the War Powers uh, Act is, is complied with and that, that the public understands that the president means what he says because he's not going to uh, insert ground troops into this uh, possible incursion. Jeannie, we've asked a lot of lawmakers on this broadcast about it. None of them have, have even nibbled on this as, as, as being necessary. Uh, do we need another authorization for the use of force here or at least uh, some guardrails on the way the military is handled? You know, I think it's something that people feel like they don't want to address now because the Biden administration has taken that off the table. But if yeah. that was to come back on, it certainly should be. I mean, one thing we should keep in mind about what Putin is intent on doing is disrupting the way of life of democracies like the United States. One aspect of our way of life is we have a Congress and an executive branch who don't have full authority. They share power. Yeah. And so that becomes critical from that perspective alone. Although, Rick, they couldn't come up with a sanctions bill. How the heck are they going to do this? Well, they're not going to do this. And, and, and it's unfortunate <laughs> that they even try, right? In addition to the lawmakers you've interviewed, you've interviewed a number of former generals who yeah. say, why would we ever take chess pieces off the table? That's right. Rick Davis back with us today, along with Jeannie Shanzano, our signature panel, Reunited. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. Glad you're spending time with us on Bloomberg Sound On. We're going to be joined next by Brian O'Toole, used to... Advise the Treasury Department's sanctions unit. An expert is next. This is Bloomberg. Today we're bringing you here on Sound On voices of experience, deep experience in diplomacy and with sanctions. As we try to make sense of all the headlines that have been flying, we take a deep dive on this program and we're joined now by Brian O'Toole, senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Geoeconomic Center, former advisor to the Treasury Department's sanctions unit. Brian, welcome back to Bloomberg. Thanks for having me. I'd like to start with the biggest news out of the White House today, sanctions on Nord Stream 2 AG, the company that built the pipeline. I know this was a delicate dance uh, with our European allies, especially Germany. Is it the right move right now? It, it certainly is. I mean, there has uh, there's been a great hue and cry from a lot of the, the Western world about, you know, kind of pronouncements out of various German officials that Nord Stream 2 was not a political um political pipeline or project. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, regardless of what, what waffling may or may not have happened, um, the, the diplomacy between the U.S. and Germany worked out the way it should. Germany took the action first. The U.S. is reinforcing it. It's a good outcome. Would it have made a difference if it had been done earlier, as many Republicans say? I don't know how much of a difference it would have made for Ukraine's security and territorial stability had this been done earlier. I mean, it's always hard to prove a counterfactual, but I, I don't I don't know that the economic impact of Nord Stream 2 being shut down, you know, even as, as significant as it may be, 
is really enough to have prompted uh, or to, to have forestalled, um, mm-hmm. you know, Putin from, from crossing this line. Certainly considering the fact that it's not operational yet. Uh, there's a big debate in Washington about timing here, as uh, I know you're well aware, whether to go incremental, as I think you've described this approach, or to go all the way uh, with punishing sanctions that have been promised if Russia goes further. Can we tell, Brian, based on history, which approach works better? I don't think there's any great history on imposing the types of sanctions that are under consideration on an economy as large as Russia's. Um, you know, Iran was a relatively large economy, but it, you know, order of magnitude smaller. So I think you know the the approach here and, and the reason why there's a debate I think between this incremental versus go big you know approach is is a, a fundamental miscommunication issue, right? Which is a classic problem in international relations. Yeah. If Putin doesn't understand or acknowledge the impact that major sanctions against a commercial bank will have, like you know, there are basically four very large commercial banks in Russia, mm-hmm. if he doesn't know what that is or understand just how much that's going to hurt, then the deterrent effect that the threats have is necessarily lower. And so I think now that he's crossed the line, um, that that worry is still there because they took more of a measured approach, and, and there's you know, there's reason why they did that. Um, so I don't want to criticize them too much over it, mm-hmm. but that that potential disconnect about what what the impact of say full blocking sanctions against a VTB or a spare bank yeah. might do to the Russian economy could give Putin the impression he's got a freer hand than he may actually have, and you may be diminishing your deterrent effect by not demonstrating kind of that immediate big impact of of big bank sanctions. Well, the debate over timing, among other things, uh, resulted in a fallout in negotiations on Capitol Hill. No bill ever came out of the Foreign Relations Committee in the Senate, despite a lot of tough talk, Brian. I wonder, has that hampered the Biden administration in dealing with this? Or is that Congress just yelling at itself? Well, I I don't think the Biden administration is lacking for sanctions authority. The kind of laws on the books, as it were, are extraordinarily broad yeah. um, and and flexible. Now, sometimes it is useful to have Congress in the background saying, if the administration's not tough enough, we're going to go crazy and, and smack you around. You know, that kind of message to, to Putin might be useful. I think that that's still kind of, that specter is still there, even without a, a bill on the table. Um, and I would... Frankly, I'd expect if if Putin expands the kind of boundaries of these republics or makes a bigger push and mm-hmm. Congress, especially the Dems um, and Congress, believe that the White House isn't being strong enough, I bet you there's a bill that materializes pretty quickly. So what's left here, Brian? People talk about going all the way, punishing, crippling sanctions. What does going all the way look like? Well, it starts with going after those big four state-owned financial institutions. It starts with going after other sectors of the economy that may be vulnerable to sanctions. And then from there, ratcheting up the pressure potentially. And and this depends on exactly where Putin's going with this, right? Is it just take over Ukraine? Is it fundamentally, you know, menace Poland and the Baltics, Um, right? These things start to get really scary really quickly when you talk about NATO defense obligations and and actual military confrontation. Mm -hmm. And that may prompt sanctions against the Central Bank of Russia, against the big state oil and gas companies, things like that. I think it's a little bit of a stimulus response approach to some degree, and the administration is going to try to use threats to contain or constrain Putin at every single step. Yeah. 
but it, it's it's a matter of how far Putin is really willing to go. And his speech the other day shouldn't give anybody any comfort. Well, that's right. There's been talk about personal sanctions, go, trying to go after Vladimir Putin on an individual level. Is it possible to sanction a man who knows how to hide money so well? I mean, sure, you can sanction him. I, I've I've never been a huge fan of sanctions against heads of state. I'm not sure it gets you much. Um, as you said, he can hide his money. It's not yeah. that hard if you're you're in control of an economy and you can forge documents with with no repercussions. Does the Treasury already have these steps figured out, or are they building the plane in flight? Do they know, to Jen Psaki's point yesterday, that the next wave comes with the press of a button, or are these ongoing deliberations? I, I think it's mostly press of a button. I think, you know, the Treasury Department has to put together actual, like, legal packages to sanction sanction people. And so that's companies. been done. I imagine, I imagine all of those are done. Um, and so then... What it comes down to is the decision by President Biden and his cabinet about exactly who's going to get the who's going to get the axe. Um, And, you know, it it struck me that one of the reasons he may have been late in giving his address yesterday was they were busy deciding that. Um, And so, you know, that's why Treasury came out a little bit later. And, you know, those things happen right up until the last minute. That's kind of how policymaking works. So but my 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 impression is that there are a lot of sanctions targets locked and ready to go. He's a man who knows. Brian O'Toole, Senior Fellow at the Atlantic Council's Geoeconomic Center. Brian, many thanks for your insights helping us clarify this today on Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much. Donald Trump is making headlines. Did you hear what he said? Of course, no stranger to Russia or Vladimir Putin, for that matter. Still a big fan, as it turns out, of the Russian president. We'll play for you what he said, talk about it with the panel. Rick and Jeannie with us today, our signature panel on Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Donald Trump still has a soft spot in his heart for Vladimir Putin, it seems. And what timing to express such feelings only 24 hours after Putin's televised rant and decision to Acknowledge the separatist regions in the Donbass with plans to send troops into the region. And of course, American intelligence warning on a daily basis that Vladimir Putin is planning much worse. Here is the former president on the Clay Travis and Buck Sexton show. I went in yesterday and there was a television screen and I said, this is genius. Putin declares a big portion of the Ukraine, of Ukraine. Putin declares it as independent. Oh, that's wonderful. So Putin is now saying it's independent, a large section of Ukraine. I said, how smart is that? Hmm. And he's going to go in and be a peacekeeper. And he described Putin as more than just smart and genius. No, but think of it. Here's a guy who's very savvy. I know him very well, very, very well. By the way, this never would have happened with us had I been in office, not even thinkable. This would never have happened. But here's a guy that says, you know, uh, I'm going to declare a big portion of Ukraine independent. He used the word independent. 
and we're going to go out and we're going to go in and we're going to help keep peace. You got to say that's pretty savvy. Savvy, smart, genius. And apparently this ran through the administration. Uh, Donald Trump's comments were reinforced by what we heard from his former Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, yesterday. I consider him a uh, elegantly sophisticated counterpart and one who is not reckless but has always done the math. And we may disagree with his priorities. We may disagree with his math. We certainly disagree that the interests that he seeks are reasonable for his country in many cases. Uh, but we should never underestimate that he is he is doing this in a way where he's exhibiting his capacity to control and his deep desire that he is most important objective. And I, I should have listed this first. His most important objective is that he continues to run the deal. Okay. Uh, first and foremost, he is about power for himself, making sure that his place as the leader of Russia continues. Well, we got that out. Uh, that was from a, a conversation hosted by the Center for the National Interest. So elegantly sophisticated, genius, smart Putin. Let's reassemble the panel. Rick and Jeannie with us, Bloomberg Politics contributors, Jeannie Shanseno and Rick Davis. Uh, Rick, I think I know what your take on this will be. It's one thing, though, to hear from Donald Trump. It's another to hear from Mike Pompeo, who has... Further political aspirations, both of these guys could end up running for president. Yeah, I hope they run against each other and counter each other out. I think that would be the best case scenario for this situation. But look, I mean, <clears throat> there are elements, the Tucker Carlson Republican wing, yeah. who seem to be uh, accommodating Vladimir Putin and and, 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 and if anything, sucking up to him. I mean, it's really uh, a, a significant departure from where the Republican Party has been in my entire lifetime, dating back to Ronald Reagan, who was able to free the people of Russia from the Soviet binds of the Soviet yeah. Union to where we are today. I mean, it's a it's a it's a steep decline from from the orthodoxy of the Republican movement. What if Donald Trump uh, were to be president again? I mean, that's that's certainly a likelihood. He says that he wants to run. It's entirely likely that he would be elected if he did. Rick Davis, what would that do to our relationship with Russia and the rest of the world. Look, these kinds of comments uh, only five or six years ago would have been completely disqualifying to a person who wanted to get the nomination from the Republican Party uh, for president. So uh, it's it's untreaded ground. Right. I mean, I think people would have to be clear now uh, that if they want Vladimir Putin to be, you know, second only to the president of the United States in um, dividing up the spoils of the world, uh, then then that would be the person you'd want to have nominated for the party. Yeah. Uh, I suspect this this would change the dynamic of the Republicans running against Donald Trump. And there will be plenty uh, who will use this as a way of trying to draw that contrast. So uh, it, it, it's a it's an ominous comment, you know, on the heels of an invasion into a free country. You know, Jeannie, we really try not to play into media stereotypes here and, you know, do the Trump bashing thing and all of that. But the comments are out there. Maybe we shouldn't be too surprised, like I said, by what Donald Trump said. But will Mike Pompeo regret those comments? Oh, he will if he if he wants to seriously run for president and have a serious chance of winning. You know, listening to uh, Donald Trump um, speaking, you wonder, does he have love letters from Putin the way he claims to have them from <laughs> Kim Jong-un? And, you know, I would just say that this, to me, exacerbates a longstanding 
division in the Republican Party between the more isolationist wing and the hawks. And I find Donald Trump in the middle all about Donald Trump. As that last clip depicted, you know, unlike some of the more isolationists like Tucker Carlson and Josh Hawley, he's saying that the one difference would have been if he was in office, Putin never would have tried this. So for Trump, it's all about Trump, which takes the Republican Party right back to 2020 Georgia Senate when they lose the Senate seats that they should have won. Mm -hmm. So, you know, to me, this is all about Trump being about himself. There is a serious uh, debate in the Republican Party, just like there is one in the Democratic Party, about how much the U.S. should be spread thin around the world. Those are real debates. This one with Trump is not. Well, Rick, let me ask you the tough question as a Republican here. Uh, Look, you may not think Vladimir Putin is elegantly sophisticated or a genius for that matter. But is Donald Trump right? Would this have happened if he was in office? Well, I mean, let's think about what happened when Donald Trump was in office, right? I mean, like Vladimir Putin sat in Crimea without one effort to try and take him out, even though it was the, you know, the country's policy uh, as it relates to the Minsk agreements to get him out of the uh, the seized territory. So there, there was never an effort on the part of the Trump administration to put any pressure on um, on on President Putin uh, to to get him out of uh, uh, the Ukraine. So why would we believe now? Uh, that he'd advance a new invasion strategy that Donald Trump would stand up to him uh, for the exact same cause. So well, it's almost as if uh, he was suggesting to, that they knew each other so well and they were such kind of pals and seeing eye to eye and having respect for each other, Jeannie, that, you know, just a phone call might have taken care of this. Yeah, that that was always Trump's selling point, right? Which was that, you know, I am so good at negotiating. People mm-hmm. just love me. I can go around the world and I can make these things happen. To Rick's point, he wasn't able to ha- make it happen in Ukraine with Crimea. He wasn't able to make it happen in North Korea. He wasn't able to make it happen in China with the trade. So, you know, failure after failure on these points, he sold himself as somebody who could do these things because of his personality and his business background. Yeah. But it certainly didn't come to... T- fruition policy-wise. Well, is, there's no point trying to get inside anyone's head here, but there are a lot of questions about not just Donald Trump, of course, but Vladimir Putin's better intentions right now. Uh, Sir Peter uh, Westmacott was on uh, Balance of Power with David Weston today, former British ambassador to the U.S., suggesting that people who know Putin are wondering if he's still all there there's plenty of, of technical intelligence you know how many tanks are there how many airplanes how many helicopters how many hospital units what about the satellite photography all that is is pretty remarkable but what we don't have is a camera inside his head and some of the foreign diplomats and leaders who have seen uh, president putin in recent times have been saying privately he's not the same guy he's not the same guy rick davis is is he a madman or crazy like a fox well, I mean, the indications are pretty stark. Uh, the speech that Vladimir Putin gave on the eve of the invasion, um, hour-long diatribe about how, you know, uh, Ukraine is not even a real place and that it's, you know, Russia's lost property, would actually indicate a worldview that is tipping on insane. Uh, I think that people raising questions about how isolated he's become and how there's nobody to check his power, and then you listen to a speech like that, you really have to wonder if if the person in charge of Russia's got all his bolts screwed tightly down. That's a very dangerous situation for obvious reasons here, Jeannie. Do you you think Vladimir Putin has gone the way of Kim Jong-un?
You know, I think that's a real concern. I mean, we saw on Russian TV, which was quite astonishing, him having this debate with his own top spy, which is quite unprecedented, and a lot of talk, uh, to your point, about him being isolated during yeah. COVID and not yeah. really having concerted conversations. And that is a very dangerous position to be in. And let's face it, now he has gone out and said he is going to do this. He's amassed these troops, and he's done everything the U.S. has said mm-hmm. he had promised to do. Rick and Jeannie, a great talk. I was looking forward to it. Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis, our signature panel here, Bloomberg Politics contributors here on Sound On. February is Black History Month. Every day this month, we're celebrating significant moments in U.S. Black history. And our chance now to hear from Renita. Our installment for this Wednesday, the 23rd of February, here is Bloomberg's Renita Young. On this day in black history in 1979, Frank E. Peterson Jr. is named the first black general in the U.S. Marine Corps. He was determined to serve his country despite racial discrimination. Peterson first attempted to join the U.S. Navy, but was asked to take the entrance exam over because administrators believed he had cheated. In 1950, Peterson enlisted in the Navy, and two years later as a Marine, he completed flight school and was commissioned as a second lieutenant. Peterson went on to become the Marine's first black aviator and served as commanding general for the Marine Corps Combat Development Command. Throughout his career, Peterson received several military awards, among them the Navy Distinguished Service Medal, Defense Superior Service Medal, and the Purple Heart. So in 1988, Peterson retired as lieutenant general after serving as special assistant to the chief of staff. That's Today in Black History. I'm Renita Young, Bloomberg Radio. Renita, thank you, and big thanks as well to Brian O'Toole and Ambassador Daniel Freed. Along with our panel, Rick and Jeannie, for a smart talk. You won't hear these conversations anywhere else. I'll see you back here tomorrow. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.